Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossville Wilmington. Glad y'all are here. Um, hey, good morning. What's up? Um, they say you're a man with true grit. That's Matty Ross. It's a movie from 1969 called True Grit. This little girl, Maddie Ross, says to John Wayne, they say you're a man with true grit. And the guy that John Wayne is playing is Rooster Cogburn. And Rooster Cogburn's got an eye patch, and he is like the supreme bad dude. He is like the ultimate tough guy, and he's got the grit. And throughout that movie, he is just not scared of anything, unstoppable, unflappable, completely capable, and he takes out hundreds of dudes all by himself with one gun. Um, True Grit is a pretty fun movie. I cannot completely endorse it nor recommend that you watch it, but um, some of you may be okay with watching it and benefit from it. But uh, the grit of Rooster Cogburn is not necessarily the grit and toughness that God's people ought to have. Um, Now, the ability to be physically strong and maybe even to fight, yes, to be sure, may be of use and in a way that could glorify God even, yes, to be sure. But more often than not, the grit and the strength and toughness of God's people is going to be demonstrated through an undying and genuine and sincere love for Jesus and other people. The toughness of God's people is going to be visible in their will and their availability to bear with people and situations for other people's good and for the glory of God and the gospel. Because you see, the grit of God's people is to be a toughness that is ultimately rooted in a tenderness. God's people are to have a toughness and a tenderness. It's two sides of one coin. They, have, they are tough because they are truly tender. And they are so tender in their love for other people that they have a resilient and lasting grit and toughness. So as we look at Acts chapter 14 today, the main thing I want to say is this. I submit a gritty God-dependent toughness in God's people brings about good for all people, be they Christian or not. A gritty, God-dependent toughness in God's people brings about good for all people. Because you see, the toughness of a Christian is actually paradoxical. It's just like everything associated with being a Christian. It is a paradox. We are guilty, but yet we are forgiven. We are very worthy to be blamed, but God in Christ declares us blameless. We are perfect, yet at the same time still being made perfect all throughout our life. So the toughness of a Christian is truly measured to the degree that we are actually Weak, weak in our dependence on Christ and our acknowledgement of that weakness and acknowledging our abiding, lasting dependence on God for everything. Our weakness is 
and, and embracing that weakness is when we have true and genuine strength. So we're not necessarily going to be rooster cogburns. We're going to be rather those that demonstrate toughness and saying, I don't have to be comfortable. This doesn't have to be easy. You don't have to treat me in the right way because I'm going to treat you exactly like I would like you to treat me, not because I'm some nice, squeaky, clean person, but because I know I have been greatly and completely known and forgiven by God. I'm free to love you however you need me to love you because I don't need you. I love you because I'm loved by God. That's the that's the ultimate definition of what it is to be tough and tender and have a gritty, God-dependent toughness. And so for the last two weeks, as Pastor Bill faithfully took us through Acts chapter 13, we saw how the church in Antioch sent out their first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. They go out, commissioned and sent out from Antioch, and they go through the island of Cyprus they go all through that island. They go through Pisidian, Antioch. They preach the gospel everywhere they're going. They meet with some resistance. They have some success. People are coming to faith, putting their faith and belief and trust in Jesus, being rescued from darkness. And now when we pick it up in Acts 14 today, we're going to see how Paul and Barnabas have left Pisidian, Antioch, and they've got to this other city called Iconium, and so in Acts 14, we see these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, who really do have true grit. And unlike Rooster Cogburn, they're real and not made up. There's no fiction to Paul and Barnabas. So I'm going to read all of Acts 14. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28 says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, 
Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea that, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Amen. Um, so verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 14, this is kind of a mixed bag of what their ministry brought about there in Iconium, the first city they went to after Pisidia and Antioch. Initially, they preach, and their, su their success, their preaching is to good effect. Jewish people and non-Jewish pe people, both of them are coming to faith in Jesus and believing. But at the same exact time that they're seeing the success and fruitfulness to their labor, they're met with resistance. They're being slandered. Jewish people who were not favorable to the gospel, it says they're stirring up the Gentiles and they poison their minds against Paul and Barnabas. So these two things are happening right side by side. Even more than side by side, it's all like stirred up together. Faith and belief is happening among some people, but then open resistance and opposition at the same time. And this is so consistent with what God always does with his people. God is too good to us to allow things to be only easy. He knows what's right for us. He loves us enough not to just give us cake and let us just sit down and eat it. He knows that what's good for us is challenge. Seasons and times of benefit and ease to be sure but mingled together with difficulty. It's always blessing along with hardship. Joy mingled with sorrow. Success and fruitfulness along with challenge and opposition. Like Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he's talking about himself and his partners in ministry. He says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's how, it is, that's how it's to be for us 
on this side of eternity in a world that is wrecked and broken and affected at every level by sin and evil, there's always going to be challenge and pain and difficulty. But what we see in verse 3 should greatly do two things, challenge us and encourage us. Because what does it say they do, what these two guys do when, when faced with this opposition? They remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. When, they're, when they meet resistance and see that the message of the gospel is not popular or well-received in this crowd, they do not say, well, I guess we should go. No, they stay right there in the midst of that hostility, and they don't stay in a meek, quiet way. They continue to make as much noise as they can, speaking boldly for the Lord. They were carried by a gritty, God-dependent toughness. As they're doing their part in obeying God and proclaiming the gospel, God is doing what only he could do and allowing these signs and wonders at their hands to validate the gospel message through Paul and Barnabas. That's what God does. What's the product of Paul and Barnabas enduring in this way in Iconium? The product is people were coming to faith all in the midst of this opposition, rep- a good reception, all these things at the same time. People are still coming to faith. People's lives are being made new, brought out of darkness and into light. As God's people persevere in public gospel-centered ministry through preaching, serving the local church, uh, participating in evangelistic outreaches or doing anything else in a public way, and as at the same time we persevere in a private life of genuine and sincere devotion to Christ, God does what only he can do and rescues people from darkness for his own glory. That's what God does with the gritty, God-dependent toughness of his people. Then as we get to verse 14, 14 through, excuse me, 4 through 7, we see that these guys, Paul and Barnabas, they're brave, but they're not stupid. Being brave is different from being foolish. Right? The people of the city are divided. Some are with the Jews, some are with the apostles. This is an attempt made by both the Gentiles and the Jews to mistreat them and stone them. So when it becomes apparent to them that they're going to have to leave or be stoned, they're prudent. They're shrewd in this moment. You see, Paul and Barnabas were awake to the fact that they had a vapor of life on this earth. They had a momentary span of life on this earth. And Paul and Barnabas had the attitude, I want to make the most of the glory I can render to God with my little bit of life that I have. With this short life that I got, I want to press the gas to the floor for glorifying God and loving and serving people. I won't be able to do much of that if I'm dead. So if they're going to stone me, I'll go on somewhere else. And we'll figure it out. A way that we could come back here if we need to. So these guys are brave. They're not stupid. They were living to please God and not men. That's why they were willing to endure an Iconium as long as they did. They didn't see that their message was unpopular and say, let's water this down. Let's go somewhere else. No, they stayed for as long as they could. Bearing with them as long as they could. They didn't leave until it was apparent that they had to. So they leave from here to avoid being stoned at this moment. They go on to Lystra and Derby, which are these two like neighboring cities that are 
a little ways from Iconium. So they leave Iconium and they go first to Lystra. And as they get there, this is verses 8 through 18. This is where they're going to see some fruit. But at the same time, it's fruit in the midst of some weird and complicated frustration. To get the real picture of what Lystra is, you need to think about Lystra being this far-flung eastern settlement of the Roman Empire, right? It has this like wild west lawless feel to it. Like it belonged to the Romans. It was officially governed by the Romans, but it was really the local people there in Lystra that ran things and governed things. So it was pretty unstable and lawless in many ways. And what's more, there's not a strong Jewish presence there in in Lystra. They speak a different language from Paul and Barnabas, Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas don't speak that. So they usually, up till now, Paul and Barnabas have always gone to a synagogue in the city, the Jewish temple. They would show up there and begin preaching the gospel to people, but there's not one of those in Lystra. So they go somewhere in Lystra and start preaching. It's a corner or the center of town or some place, some, maybe a marketplace, but they start preaching there. And in verses 8 through 10, this is what we see. Now at Lystra, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. This guy's sitting there, he's crippled, he's never walked. He's listening to Paul as he speaks. And Paul looks intently at him. And the word says that he sees that he has faith to be made well. So Paul, in the moment, right, dynamically there in the moment, he can see, and this guy, I'm preaching, he speaks Lyconian, I'm just using what I got, God. I speak whatever language Paul is speaking. I don't know how much this guy is understanding. I'm just obediently going to proclaim what you've given me to proclaim. And as he observes this guy, maybe in his face or in his behavior, his body language, he could see God's doing something in this guy. I don't even think he could tell me if he wanted to, but God is doing something in this man, bringing about faith in some way. And Paul says, hey, stand up right now. And the word says that he springs up. The word says this guy sprang up. I think that's so helpful. Have you ever had to take apart something that had a spring in it? And you've got to put it back together. And you have to pinch this whole spring down together. And it will inevitably get out of your fingers. And where's that spring going? Anywhere but where you need it, right? Bam, it's going to be gone. That's the word that ESV chooses to use. This guy jumps up. What, why does this happen? It's because God in this moment wants it to be crystal clear to everybody observing This gospel is my message. This gospel that Paul and Barnabas in here, they're not just some eccentric, eclectic Hebrew guys showing up in your city making some foolish noise. The message they have is the one of life and forgiveness for eternity. In the same way that this guy's going to jump up and be made new, When Paul says stand up, the message of the gospel makes dead people jump up and have life who previously were dead. So that's what God's doing. And so these Lyconians in Lystra, they observe this happen, and the result is this ecstatic enthusiasm. Lystra's pagan, polytheistic, lots of gods, Right? And so they see this happen and they conclude, oh, the gods have come down in human form. They don't quite even understand what they're saying. They just observe the miracle. And so they just say, all this sacrifice to these guys. And what ensues is this scene. And it's a mess. 
It's a big, complicated mess. They're like, oh, the sacrifice to these guys. They're clearly gods. Look what they've done. And Paul and Barnabas, there's no reason for us to think that they fully understood what was happening. They didn't understand the words. They were having to infer and surmise what was happening from what they observed. So it's just this crazy mess. They're bringing bulls and flowers, and one guy's building some big fire. And they say, hey, what are these two Hebrew guys talking about? I don't know, but you see how they healed that guy? Let's burn some bulls. I'm not even sure what's going on. It's messy, and it's complicated. And whatever it was, I'm sure it's not what Paul and Barnabas were hoping for, right? So this is a big mess. And how did they get in this mess? They went looking for it. Paul and Barnabas had set out looking to preach the gospel and allow whatever happened to happen. They knew that that wasn't up to them. What was up to them was to go forward and proclaim the message. Love people, love people by preaching the truth. And that's what they were committed to do. And here's this mess on their hands. I think at this moment, it's right for us to observe how much more ought we to be okay with some mess and slop in our efforts to share the gospel. Here's what I mean. If we're gonna be used by God to share the truth of Jesus with people, we need to be okay to get into people's messy and complicated situations and be okay with it and bear with them. In the similar way that Paul and Barnabas were like, no, you're not to be worshiping us. This is a mess. I'm here to tell you to live for God and to believe believe in Jesus and surrender to him, not to worship me. In a similar way, we need to be willing to openly proclaim the gospel of people and hang in there and persist with people and be available to people and be close to people when they respond to us in messy ways. When their life is such a craziness, the pain and the sin and the addiction, the struggles they have is such that they respond to us in a way that makes us say, oh, this is not how I wanted this to go. I wish you were responding differently we got to be like Paul and Barnabas and not ditch on these people and flee from the mess and the complication that people bring with them. So at some point, Paul and Barnabas figure it out from seeing the bulls and the flowers. They say, oh, no, they're trying to sacrifice to us, Barnabas. That's what's going on here. They tear their robes. They say, no, we're human beings, men just like you, you're not to be doing this. And they do the very best that they can to preach a sermon to these guys, but they can't even get through it for the people trying to sacrifice to them. Their temptation to be frustrated must have been immense. You imagine they're doing their very best and this mess is ensuing. But also consider this. Look at Paul and Barnabas' response to the admiration and praise. They deny it and renounce it immediately, right? That's just like Peter and John way back in chapter 3 of Acts, right? Peter and John heal this man. They're in Jerusalem, Solomon's portico. Everybody says, oh, Peter and John, this is amazing. Peter and John say, no, not us. It is God through faith in Jesus who brought this healing. And then contrast that with how Herod responded to the worship and admiration in chapter 12. The voice of God and not of a man. Herod welcomes and accepts that, 
falls down and dies, eaten by worms. Not Paul and Barnabas. They reject that as fast as they can. No, not us. It is God who's to be worshipped. And so verses 16 through 18, this is frenzy, this crazy mess. All this enthusiasm, all this gladness, what, seeing what they're doing. And it's right then in this moment, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city because he looked like he was dead. The disciples gather around him. They, he goes back, gets back up, goes back into the city. Next, city. next day, he's on the road to Derby. So these Jews are so hostile to Paul and Barnabas and their teaching that they've actually pursued them from the previous cities. They've come after them from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium to Lystra to get them. That's how white hot their anger is against Paul and Barnabas. And they stone him. They throw rocks at him so severely that it's, he's, he appears to be dead. He, they drag him out of the city and they lay him down. The disciples gather around him. Now what must this have been like for Paul? Doing all he can, Paul and Barnabas, all that they know to do to love these people, to serve them and preach the gospel to them. And they are met with open and unbridled hostility and malice. Rocks thrown at him until they look like, he looks like he's dead. What a miserable and desperate situation this must have been. So he, he's there on the ground. They gather around him. I imagine they pray for him. And what does he not do? He doesn't get up and say, well, let's go. They don't, they don't want this here. No, he goes right back into Lystra. It says he goes right back into the city where he just got stoned. I don't know what the time lapse was like. How long was he on the ground? Was it, was it a day or was it a couple of hours? I don't know, but I'm sure they saw him come back into Lystra and the Lystras were like, this guy, he does not get it. This is not going to go over well here. But Paul is un. Daunted, he goes back because he's determined to glorify God and love and serve these people. He's got a gritty, God-dependent toughness about him that carries him in this way, that propels him to have this kind of courage to love people and love God and preach the gospel. What this makes me think of is this picture with my boy, Joshi. So our middle boy, Joshua, um, has a stride bike, it's a little bike, no pedals. You run it with your feet on the ground. He's real good at his stride bike. He could totally ride a real bike now. But when you get on a real bike and your feet are on the pedals, it feels really different. And so uh, about a week ago, he was all into riding his real bike. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm, Daddy, teach me. I want to practice. Can we go now? Can we go now? All this enthusiasm for wanting to go get on his real bike and ride it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to be with you. You're going to fall. I'm going to help you. We're going to, you're going to do it. And we get out there, and he gets on that bike, and he starts to get his feet on the pedals. He goes, ah, I don't want to do that. Because he feels, oh, wait, I don't, I don't feel real secure. I don't, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. I actually don't want to do it. And how much is that like us when it comes to efforts of evangelism? 
as we seek to preach the gospel to other people in our lives, we get some zeal, we get stirred up, we get some enthusiasm, we get a, an initial head of steam, of courage, and we say, yes, let's do it. I want to speak to this person about Jesus and I want to see how they respond and, and I want to pursue them and stick with them. And then we do that and we're met with some kind of static. We're met with some kind of a hostile response where maybe they ridicule us or they think it's foolish or silly or ridiculous to be talking about Jesus. Or maybe we're met with some kind of indifference where they're like, oh, that's sweet. You would say that. You're like some kind of nice person. And they don't take it seriously. They don't respond in faith. And we respond with, oh, gosh, that was way harder than I thought. I, I didn't want them to respond that way. We need to be more like Paul. We need more of a dose of what Paul had. We need to observe him and Barnab his and Barnabas' example and say, God, I need a dose. I need a measure of that kind of gritty toughness not to be strong and fight but to be able to hang in there and love people and stick with them and bear with them as I consistently share the gospel with them. So then uh, verses 20 through 23, the disciples gather around him. He gets up. He goes back into the city. Next day, he goes to Barnabas to Derby. They go to Derby. They preach there and win many disciples. And then they go back right back through all these cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So I'm sure Paul was scared. I've heard it said that the definition of courage isn't not being afraid, it's being afraid and doing the right thing anyway. I'm certain that's probably what Paul was like. But he, he wasn't scared enough to not go back to all those places. If you're keeping count, he's three for three. He's 100% for going into cities and having people hate him, right? Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. He goes back to all three of them. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not going back there. I'm going to keep a comfortable buffer between me and them because their hostility towards me was so great. No, in a wise, courageous way, he says, no, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go back into those places. Why is he doing that? Because he goes in there and he helps the people who have believed in Jesus. He loved the people who have come, he loved the people of those cities enough that he didn't want to just see them put their faith in Jesus, become Christians, and then just walk away from them and say, fare thee well. I hope you do well as a Christian. No, he wanted to go back and help them get set up as a church. He wanted to make sure they had elders established over them to shepherd them and teach them, a work, teach them the word and equip them for the works of service, to teach them how to live and grow as a Christian. He loved these people. He was willing to go back, put himself in danger to go back and serve and look after these people. And then he goes and he stands before them and he says with such unique and genuine authority and conviction, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what he says. I wonder, I wonder I, again, I don't know what the time frame was like exactly, but I wonder if Paul still had like visible wounds on him from being stoned. Imagine if that guy stands in front of you and says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Because me, Chris, Matt, and Bill, we stand up here and say that, 
and we're liable to think, oh, okay, I get it. I don't know if you really ever encountered any difficult for, difficulty for Christ. But Paul, still with blood and open sores on him, he just got stoned in Lystra. When he says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, we're likely to think, yes, I believe you. I think you know what you're talking about. I think you've lived the words that you're telling me. So you see, a gritty, God-dependent toughness in God's people brings about good, ultimate good for all people. Just try to quantify for a second. Not that numbers are everything, but they do mean something. Try to quantify just some of the things, some of the product of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. This one missionary journey, four churches. Churches planted, many people coming to faith in Jesus. In the town of Lystra, Timothy comes to faith. Timothy becomes a Christian in the city of Lystra. The guy to whom First and Second Timothy are written. Timothy, Paul comes. He's not a believer. He comes to faith because of Paul's ministry. He grows up to be a pastor of a church himself. And so four churches planted, plus the, t- the church that Timothy would be the pastor of in Ephesus. Imagine how many people came to faith later because of four churches plus Timothy's being planted. All those people coming to faith. And then there's us, the visible product of us in this room right now in 2021. We're, we're partially due here indebted to the faithful, courageous, sacrificial work of Paul and Barnabas, establishing the church, passed down to generations and generations so that you and I can sit here and enjoy forgiveness in Jesus. That's the fruit of a gritty, God-dependent toughness. That's the kind of thing that God does to glorify himself as people make themselves available to sacrifice and love people as God has loved them first. And then we get to verses 24 through 28. They go back, home church, sending church to Antioch. They get there. They gather the church together. They tell them all that God's done through them. And they remain no little time with the disciples. I think this is such a special part of this chapter because it shows a few things that they valued their church. They, Paul and Barnabas were not some kind of lone ranger, dynamic duo out on their own doing ministry. No, they were connected to and sent by and commissioned by a loving church to which they were rightly and gladly accountable. Paul and Barnabas perceived that it was right to go back to Antioch, and those people were entitled to hear how the journey had gone because they had supported them, commissioned them, and sent them. They, They were entitled to hear, here's the good things that happened. Here's the challenges we met with. Here's what we're thinking of doing next. And then it says they remained no little time with the disciples. They stayed right there with their church family for a while. They didn't just hop in and hop back out. They came and they stuck around for a while. What's that mean? That Paul and Barnabas saw and recognized their need for their church family. Paul and Barnabas knew that they hadn't graduated from needing to be around other believers. They knew that other believers needed to be around 
them. They know that they, they needed to strengthen and encourage their church family, and they needed to be strengthened and encouraged and cared for by their church family. If Paul and Barnabas need their church, we need each other, right? If they need each other, goodness gracious, we are going to need each other to keep each other stirred up, to keep showing each other the example of what it looks like to live for Jesus and your life and my life, how I'm trying to reach out to people, who I'm praying for, what I'm living through, how I'm trying to conquer sin in my life. We need each other. So right here at the end, Acts 14, I want to ask three questions now. Three questions. The first one is this. Number one, why? Why did Paul and Barnabas do this? Why did they agree to this? Why would they volunteer for this? Why would they submit themselves to such a thing? Why did they go on this missionary journey in the first place? Why were they so determined to preach the gospel? Why were they willing to endure being stoned within an inch of their life? Why were they willing to be scorned and disrespected and ridiculed and rejected by all these people? Why were they wanting to do this? The answer is because they had been born again. They were new people. They were new creations. They, were, they had been born a second time as a new Paul and a new Barnabas. They had a new life. They knew Jesus and they had experienced the life-transforming gift of salvation through faith in Him. They were fulfilled and they were content and they were compelled and sustained by a deep and abiding love for Jesus and for other people. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He had an abiding contentment, and he and Barnabas were desperate to see other people welcomed into that same standing with God that they enjoyed. And then also in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, still Paul Paul, the same guy that got stoned in Lystra, says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul and Barnabas knew what it was to be justified, to be made right with God, to be declared guiltless, and innocent before God. And they were very glad for it. And they wanted other people to know what it was like to be at peace with God. They knew themselves what it was 
to have lived through suffering and what it was like to have that suffering produce not despair, but hope. And they wanted to see as many people as they could possibly influence share in that same hope. They wanted to give away the words of life of the gospel to see other people justified before God. So that's the answer to question one. Why were they willing to do this? It's because they were born again and they had a new life in and through Jesus, who he is and through his work. And question two is this. Are you imitating Paul and Barnabas' example? Question for me, just as well as for you. Am I imitating to any measure in my life? Am I imitating the example of Paul and Barnabas? Am I imitating them in their boldness? Do I have a difficult person in my life with whom I am sharing the gospel? For some of us, the answer right now might be no. I, I don't actually have anybody right now that I'm connected to that I'm sharing the gospel. And if that's true, there's a way in which that's okay. Because the first right thing to do is just acknowledge, I don't have anybody that I don't know anybody. It's not a Christian. We ought to pray to that end to say, God, bring me to someone who needs you. Give me the desire to give you away to someone else. Bring me to someone who needs you. For others of us, we say, yes, I do have a difficult person I'm trying to preach the gospel to. And they consistently placate me with right answers. But I know that they don't truly love and believe in Jesus. Have you ever shared the gospel with a person who could tell you all the right words and say all the right things and placate you in such a way they say, oh yeah, I get it. Forgiveness, believe, Jesus died for me, yeah. But you know that their life is actually dominated by sin because you know them. You know that their life is actually completely wayward from the way that God would have them live. Do you have someone like that in your life? What God would have you do is to be like Paul and Barnabas and endure in love with that person. And to as gently and as wisely, but as seriously as you can, exhort and encourage them to live for Jesus. Do you share the gospel with someone in your life who openly ridicules or opposes you? God would have you adopt the gritty, God-dependent toughness like Paul and Barnabas have, not in a way that's big and bold and brash and oppressive, but that is meek and humble and gentle, but really strong because it's rooted in the tenderness of the love that God has for you that you want to demonstrate to other people. Do you have some kind of difficult relationship with anybody in your life? Some kind of relationship where it just seems like everything is broken. And it seems like nothing you do is working. They don't seem to care about forgiveness. They don't, seem to be want to, they don't seem to want to be reconciled to you or anyone else. And it appears like patience, forbearance, dying to yourself, doing all the things that are right and obedient to God. It appears, and you're tempted to think that those things don't work. What would God have you do? He would have you enter the city again, as it were, just like Paul did, 
to go right back into the fray with that person and lovingly and with care and genuine interest for them, persevere and endure with them. Encourage them unto the right thing. Speak to them the words of life. Are you experiencing gladness right now in your relationship with Jesus right now? In, in your life with Jesus right now, do you feel, are you carried and propelled in the same way that Paul and Barnabas are? Do you have a gladness and a settled hope in your relationship with Jesus that leads you to live for him and obey him and endure with difficult people and share the gospel with people? If not, some of you are here and you're like, no, I'm, I'm just discouraged. And I can't even frame it off right. It's just things in my life I'm just distracted by. And I'm reading God's word and it just seems kind of tasteless and bland to me. And I'm not feeling excited. And I just got a lot of things going on that are weighing me down. If that's you, as it has been with all of us, what God would have you hear is to hang in there. And in a dependent but tough way, don't give up on your time alone in the word and in prayer. Don't give up on reaching out to other brothers and sisters and saying, I need you to help me. I just need to talk to you. I need you to understand what's in my life right now. And I need you to help me because we need each other. And we have to have a gritty toughness that says, I'm not satisfied with being discouraged. I want to get out of this. I want to have a fresh wind of hope from the Holy Spirit. I want to have a fresh sensation of joy in Jesus that propels me, that takes a certain measure of weakness and toughness that we've got to have. God would have you discern what it is that dilutes or waters down your courage for sharing Jesus with other people. He, God would have us think, what is the thing that is sapping away my joy out of my walk with Jesus? Am I so addicted to my phone or social media or entertainment that I just don't have anything left for excitement for Jesus? Is there some kind of sin that I've made peace with, but really God wants me to make combat against, that I need to get real with and make war against? What God would have you and I hear is the words of Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the last question, number three, is, are you a Christian? Are you even a Christian? Are, have you been born again? I've lived long enough, been around groups of people enough to know that there's someone here that doesn't truly know Jesus. You've never actually trusted in him. And so when you hear the question, are you imitating Paul and Barnabas' example, you're thinking, I don't even know if I really believe in Jesus, let alone if I'm trying to imitate the example of those guys. If that's you, then I want you to know that today is the day that for you to trust Jesus, have a new life in him. Because the bottom line is that the ultimate thing that Paul and Barnabas had come to grips with was firstly that they themselves were sinners. 
they'd come to a point in their life where they recognized, I'm a guilty and condemned man before God. God is so awesome and so holy and so high and so lifted up that if I have any chance with him, it's going to be because forgiveness that he would have for me. And they turned and they believed and they saw Jesus, the one and great God man who did everything necessary for them to have salvation who earned all their righteousness at the cross, who accepted all their guilt, and who took all the punishment for their sin in their place. And they put their faith in him and trusted in him and were born again into a new resurrected life. If you've never done that, today is the day in which you can do that. Ephesians 1.7 says, and this is again Paul speaking, stoned in Lystra, Paul says, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Will you pray with me? So God, we need you to do these things. None of us are adequate for any of these things. We cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot make ourselves clean or righteous. We cannot cancel our guilt. But God, you can and you have. There is nothing else you need to do for anybody in this room other than what you've already done through your son Jesus. So God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that you would give them faith that you would awaken them unto faith in you, Jesus. That you would let them know that there's nothing that they could have done that would put them outside of what you could forgive them for. There's nowhere they could have gone so that you cannot reach them with your love. There is no decision they could have made that will put them beyond what you are able to restore and forgive and redeem. And I pray for believers in this room who are weighed down and discouraged, God. I pray that they would not feel condemned or ashamed, God. But they would see you, Jesus, as you rightly are, as a patient and compassionate and faithful high priest. Jesus, we will never talk about too much how much you love us. So God, I pray for everybody in this room that they would live in the light of the grace of Jesus. God, would you do these things? Holy Spirit, would you make this happen? God, would it please you to use us to win thousands of people in Wilmington to faith in you, Jesus? Would you let us not only be glad to live for you today, but to leave from here and be glad to worship you with all our lives Monday through Saturday? We need your help for all these things, God. We depend on you, and we trust in you, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.